Good morning. You guys are in for a lot of great drawings today. Yeah. I really should probably take one of those art classes from Heaven's Least. That might help. But um, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. If you grab one of the blue Bibles from the baskets, it's page 840. Matthew chapter 13. Um, we did almost all of Matthew chapter 13 last Sunday. Jesus just goes through this list of parables where he's describing what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. As you're flipping, just a real quick review. In the first parable, he says, basically people respond to the message of the kingdom in four ways. There are people whose hearts are like a road. They're hard. And the seed falls and it just doesn't even get absorbed. And the enemy comes and snatches it away like birds would seed on a road. And he says, other people, their hearts are rocky, right? And there's soil, so the seed penetrates. But then when hardship comes, when the sun beats down on them, they just kind of wither because they have no root. And other people, he says, um, are in soil... And they sprout up. Like I said, these are great drawings. But there's weeds, right? And he says, and they're deceived by what, what the 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 what is the of wealth? Deceitfulness of wealth. Thank you. They're de- the deceitfulness of wealth is like thorns that choke them, and so they don't produce fruit. And then he says, other people. Their hearts are good soil. And the seed, the good news, goes down into their hearts. They get roots. And they produce a crop 30, 60 to 100 fold is what he says. And over and over, Jesus encourages us to be these kind of people. That we not only receive his word, but we become rooted in it. So that what produces that crop in us. And, and in the Bible, the crop, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is good things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's what these people have. The deceitfulness of wealth is that you can get that kind of stuff from wealth. You can't. So he encourages us to be people of the good soil and He tells the parable of the hidden treasure, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, and somebody found it, and he's like, oh my goodness, and so he buried it up, he runs out, and he sells everything he has so he can buy that field and get that treasure. And Jesus says, be like that, go after it with everything you've got. Now, that that last parable, it's not about salvation. Because we can't earn salvation. We can't buy salvation. It's about the treasure that we have in heaven. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. I I just want to be as clear about this as I can be. For it is by grace. It's God's gift that you have been saved through faith. That's faith in believing in Christ Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. The only way people enter the kingdom of God 
is by having faith in Jesus Christ. That's the ticket. But once you have that ticket, you can't actually earn treasure there. Jesus also says this, Matthew 6, 19-20. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's talking about that deceitfulness of wealth. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus tells one more parable about the kingdom of heaven. Motivation to make sure that we are people of good soil and that we invite other people to receive the message too. This is the parable of the weed, of the net, I'm sorry. Beginning in verse 47. This is the word of God. It's the word of truth and life. Right? So let's read it together. Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore and then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the righteous from the, I'm sorry, separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we've been going through this series in Matthew, one of the things that's become evident is that Jesus in Matthew talks about hell a lot. He has all these different parables. He is telling about people getting thrown into the fire, thrown where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I've read those verses, but I've never really talked about them. And this week, God said to me, it's time to talk about them. Do you remember, I think it was last week, I said, we have these ideas of what heaven is like, like that we're angels on clouds playing harps, and that's not even in the Bible. We have ideas about hell that aren't in the Bible either. They're more based on the poem Dante's Inferno. So today, we are going to look at what the Bible says about the afterlife. And what it does not say about the afterlife, okay? So we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of different scriptures. I'll put them on the screen for you. In the Bible, there's several verses that talk about where we go when we die. We know that righteous people who have believed in Jesus go to be with the Lord. And there's there's several verses about that. I'm just going to share one with you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, says this. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body, that's death, and at home with the Lord. That when a believer in Jesus dies, they don't go into some kind of limbo. They go home to be with the Lord. All right, you ready for some drawings? 
Okay. Genesis 1 through 2 paints this picture. God creates the heavens and the earth. There's earth. God is going to do it in green. Here we go. that a little that's a little better than last time okay and God is with them on earth he, he like walks and talks so this is this is like heaven or something I don't know okay but he, he walks and talks with them on earth but then they rebel against God and so and remember earth was a gift that God gave to Adam and Eve to rule over. There we go. And they rebelled against him. So then there became this break between God and heaven and earth. This is the rest of the Old Testament right here. Okay. And in the Old Testament, it says that the righteous will live. That's, that's about it. And it also talks about this place called Sheol. And that when the dead die, they go down to Sheol. And that's all it says. There's really no description in the Old Testament of what Sheol is, except that it's down. In the depths of the earth. That, that's, that's all we really know. Okay? And then Jesus comes in the New Testament. And he begins... To give revelation about this. So we still have this picture. There we go. Heaven and earth are separate. Now, the New Testament is not written in ancient Hebrew. It's written in Greek. So they don't use the word sheol. What word would they use? Hades, yes. And Jesus talks about Hades. And in Hades, it, it's kind of the same thing. It's like when people die, they go down there. All right? And But Jesus also talks... All right, in Revelation, we'll sh- I'll show you this. And it talks about Hades and a lake of fire. And they are separate. They are different from each other. And Jesus, he talks about Hades... But he also talks about this place where people get punished and burn in fire. And whenever he talks about that, he uses the Greek word Gehenna. Okay? So we're going to look at what the differences between these places are. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. This is... I don't have Revelation on here. Alright, we're done with this one. So... The New Testament is the present. This is actually the era that we live in. Revelation tells us what things are going to be like in the future. Alright? It's okay, you can put that back up there. Alright, so we have our earth again. And I saw the dead. This is talking at the end of time. Great and small, standing before a throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's this whole stack of books, and then there's one book, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. They were judged according to their works. All right, next verse. 
And the sea gave up their dead, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to that stack of books, to what they had done. Keep going. Then death and Hades were thrown into a lake of fire. Okay. So that's the lake of fire. And so Hades is like this temporary holding place for the unrighteous dead until the last judgment. And then Hades is destroyed. It's thrown in the lake of the fire. This lake of fire is called the second death. This, of course, is the first death, right? Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. So you see there's almost two judgments. There's one judge based on what you've done. And that's your opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. And the picture that um, Revelation paints is of this. That there will be a new heaven and new earth. And they will be together again. And God will be with his people. But this lake of fire is going to be separate. Okay. So, first of all, no one is in hell right now. When you die... You either go to be with the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or you go to this place called Hades. So the big question is, what is Hades like? And does everyone who go to Hades automatically end up here? There's only one passage in the Bible that describes what Hades is like. I mean, it's mentioned several times, but it actually describes what it's like. And that is, comes from Jesus in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, I'm just going to pause right there. Most Bible scholars don't believe this is a parable. Because Lazarus has a name. None of Jesus' parables are people named. This is someone who has a name. But note that Jesus does not know the name of the rich guy. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. This is just such a pathetic representation of heaven. But yes, so he went to be with Abraham, next to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus 
to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, while you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. Chasm, I'm sorry. Has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead. This is the only time the Bible mentions someone in Hades being tormented with fire. And most Bible scholars think that in Hades there are degrees of punishment. Because not everyone is described as being tormented in fire. That belief comes from Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus says this, The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the masters want will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and yet does things deserving of punishment, maybe they should have been able to figure it out if they really wanted to, will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And understand the context. That is, what's given much is knowledge of God. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. But that, that parable by Jesus, it teaches the principle that there are degrees of punishment. That God is just, alright? The other thing we learn from um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus is, is it says that people can't go from here to there. Now, the context is it, it's saying that they can't go on a whim. They can't just like travel back and forth and see each other. But does that mean no one can ever? Well, one person did. Psalm 16, verse 10. This was David writing, and he's prophesying. He says, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you let your holy ones see decay. And after Jesus rose from the dead on Pentecost, Peter preached. I need you to go back to that same slide a minute. Thank you. Peter preached to a large crowd, telling them that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said, Jesus Christ... Not Jesus Christ, but Jesus, the man that you crucified, died. But God raised him back up. And Peter quotes Psalm 16.10. Now, he, he doesn't say Sheol. He says Hades. But he quotes it about Jesus. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Leave. <laughs> we 
which means Jesus' soul went where? Into Hades. Yeah. But God didn't leave him there. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. I can just imagine. There was this period after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended into heaven and he saw lots of people. And there's one story of him and Peter around a campfire. And I can just imagine Peter saying, like, why did you have to stay dead for three days? You should like, you worried us sick. Like, you know, like, why didn't you just come back up right away? What were you doing for those three days? And Jesus says, oh, I went to Hades and preached. Preach. Yeah, preach. Because Peter writes this. First uh, Peter, do we have that? First Peter 3. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, and being put to death in the flesh, Death means separation. So the first death is separation from the body. So the implication in Scripture, I don't want to be more clear than Scripture is, but the implication is that when people either go to be with the Lord or go to Hades, that they are spirit because they've been separated from their body. But then there's a resurrection and they receive new bodies, okay? So he was put to death in the flesh, but he was still made alive in the spirit. And in that spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Proclaimed, it's preached, it's the same word. He preached down there. And it says this, that the spirits were in prison because, what's the next verse? Because they formally did not obey. And the way the Greek is constructed here, it's, it, it's kind of inferring like he preached to everyone in prison because they formally, who were there because they formally did not obey, including and especially even those people who were there during the days of Noah, like who, who lived during the days of Noah and had decades to repent because the ark was being built. And even like the animals started coming two by two and they saw all that and they still didn't repent. Only eight people did. Jesus even preached to them. Why? To rub it in their face how wrong they were. Look what else Peter writes. This is in Second Peter. He says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. Is it possible that Jesus went to Hades and preached to people there so they could repent? And was he at all successful? Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. Guys, this is a cryptic passage. I'm not going to tell you that interpretation on this is crystal clear, okay? But this is historically how the church has interpreted this passage, often interpreted it. It says, But to each one of us a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that is why it says, When he ascended on high... He took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So Christ ascends and he's taking captives with him. 
And then the next verse is very interesting. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the low, lower earthly regions? And some will say, well, that just means he descended to earth. But throughout the Bible, the lower earthly regions are always Sheol in Hades. So it paints. So he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. So it paints this picture that Jesus dies, he descends to heaven, and then he ascends to heaven with what? Captives. So let's talk about purgatory. Because that's, it's upon these verses that the teaching of purgatory is based. Okay? I'm not teaching you anything new here. This is old, old theology actually. Purgatory was a belief and it's still taught in the Catholic Church and even to some extent in the Anglican Church that um, people, the unrighteous dead who have not trusted in Jesus go to they would say purgatory, but you can Sheol, Hades, purgatory, same place, okay? And they pay for their sins according to what they have done. And once they have paid for their sins, they can earn their way into heaven, or their loved ones can help earn their way into heaven by doing good deeds. And this really came to a head with the selling of indulgences. When the Catholic Church wanted to fund the Crusades, and so they told people, if you give to the church, you can buy your loved ones out of Hades, out of purgatory, into heaven. Guys, can we earn our way into heaven? No. No, we can't. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so the people here, they can pay for their sins, but they can't earn their way into heaven. And you surely cannot earn their way into heaven. That's an abuse. And because it was so abused, when the Protestant Reformation happened, they just stopped teaching about this altogether. But that doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 25, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, meaning this confession, that he's the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, it does not say hell, he actually says Hades, will not prevail against it. Now there's two ways to interpret that. That one is the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, that could be the it, or the it could be the confession. That God is building his church on. That he is the son of the living God. What if people when they go here have an opportunity to still confess that Jesus is the son of the living God. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Guys, I can't tell you that's for sure. I can't be more definite than scripture is. Like I said, these texts are cryptic. But it is a possible, and it is a historical interpretation. 
I want to go back to Revelation 20. We're going to start in verse 13. We, we read this already, but I just want to review it because we've covered a lot of ground between there and now. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this lake of fire is the second death. And then it says, next verse, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And we know our names get written in the book of life by believing in Jesus Christ. And one of the things people struggle with is like, well, what? What if someone's never even heard of Jesus Christ before? That does not seem fair. What if Jesus still preaches to people in Hades? He says he has the keys. I don't know for sure that happens, but he did it once. So let's talk about this lake of fire now, okay? What is it like, and do people who go there stay there forever? Jesus, when he talks about, um, there's all kinds of verses. He's like, you know, it's better to cut out your eye than get thrown into the lake of fire. And he, he t- has all these parables of people getting thrown into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all of those passages, he talks about it. He uses the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual place. It was a valley outside, it, it's still there today outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, the place where people go for punishment is like Gehenna. And he says, he uses the word Gehenna seven times in Matthew, three times in Mark, once in Luke, and and his brother James also uses it. So what is this place Gehenna? Because I think if we understand that, we can understand a lot. Well, um, so Gehenna is a Greek word that I'm certainly not pronouncing right. Um, But Geh means land. And henna, that, that comes from Hennam, okay? And so in the Old Testament, there's this place, the valley or the land of Hennam. Jeremiah talks about it most extensively. Jeremiah 7.31. This was a valley outside of Jerusalem. They have built high places, a topeth in the valley of Ben-Hanam. Ben means sons, in the valley of the sons of Nah, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So the people of Israel were going to this valley, and they were sacrificing, um, it was usually their firstborn children, to the god Molech, or Molech. And we know from archaeology and other ancient sources, Molech, the, there were like the, these statues, and it was carved out in the middle, and they would put a fire in there. And I think these statues had like arms like this, and they would lay the child there. And they believed that if they sacrificed their firstborn, Molech would give them prosperity. And so the worship of Molech included these beating of drums, really loud drums, to drown out the sounds of the children. 
And God says, that was something that I didn't command you to do, and it never even came to my mind. And then in the ninth century, Josiah was a king of Israel who did reforms. And he tore down those idols, and he, he desecrated it to keep people from continuing going back there. And he turned it into a latrine, which it still is to this day. And, um, and then in Jesus' time, so Gehenna, it was a latrine, and it was also where Jews would take their trash and burn. And to keep you know, disease from breaking out, they just had continual perpetual fires there that people would go and burn trash. So that's the place that Jesus is talking about when he says, um, you know, you're going to be sent to a place like Gehenna. And I think it's very interesting that when Jesus says, this is this is what happens to those who are wicked. He's referring to a place that Je- that God says it it was never his command and it did not even enter his mind that people should be burned there. And he actually says this three times in Jeremiah. He repeats the same phrase three times in um, Jeremiah 19 verse 5 and also 32 verse 35. He says you burned your sons and daughters in Gehenna, in the valley of Hanan, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. And Jesus backs that up. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41. He says, Then I will say, this is another parable about the end of time, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. This fire was never prepared for humans. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, and it's eternal because they will be there eternally. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here's the question. This was prepared for the devil and his angels. But there are people who want no part of God. If their name is not written in the book of life, they are thrown in there. But do they stay there forever, too? Or is the forever in hell just for the devil and his angels? Let's look at scripture. There are, there's an abundance of scripture that says for the... For the wicked, for sinners, their punishment is death. They will perish. We're going to look at several of them, not all of them, because there's just a ton. And over and over it says their punishment is death. There's only two verses that seem to indicate otherwise. And we'll look at those two. Isaiah 66, verse 24. This is talking about the end of time. 
people from all over the earth gather in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And it says this, And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they, or the sight of them, will be loathsome to all mankind. So the worms, the fire, doesn't end. But it sure sounds like they're dead. The dead bodies, it's the same word used for corpses. There's no indication here that they are conscious. One of the most prevalent metaphors about the final judgment is the harvest. We see it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. John the Baptist talks about it at several places. That at the end of the time, the angels will basically harvest people. And the wheat will be cut. And the weeds will be thrown into the fire. We read one of these passages last Sunday. Matthew 13. Same, same chapter that we read from today. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When weeds are thrown into a fire, do they last forever? The parable we read today, the fish thrown into the fire, when fish are thrown into the fire, do they last forever? Gehenna, where the Jews burn their trash, and Jesus says it's like Gehenna. Did the trash they burn last forever? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is burning forever and ever. What does it say? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not burn eternally, tortured ever and ever in hell. Is that what it says? So it should not perish, but have eternal life. Guys, there are countless verses in the Bible that talk about that those who sin will perish, that they will die. Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one. And and he's teaching the fear of the Lord here, the fear of God, because God is the one who decides these things. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell, in Gehenna. It's not just a body being destroyed, it's a soul being destroyed. All right, let's look at our exceptions, okay? Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46. This is another story about the end of time that Jesus is telling. Like I said, he talked about this a lot in Matthew. I just felt in good conscience that we couldn't do a series on Matthew and not address this stuff. Then he'll say to those on his left, he's already talked to those on his right and said, well done. Then he'll say those... 
On his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will, and they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So, some people read that verse, a lot of people read that verse, and they say, it says eternal punishment, meaning it goes on forever and ever and ever. You see that? The opposite side of the debate says, yes, it does say that, but what is the punishment? The wages of sin is what? Is death, not eternal burning. It's death, meaning, look, there's two deaths. And the first death, this is the first death, there is resurrection from. The second death, there is no resurrection from. This death, you are forever dead. Those are the two interpretations of that verse, all right? Is that, do you understand? There's one more passage we have to deal with. From Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. This is talking about the end of times. There's going to be a great turmoil on the earth. And a lot of different things are going to happen. And um, I'm just going to give you some context. And the theme of Revelation is that God reveals himself. Like, so it's crystal clear. And people either repent or they just are stubbornly no. (laughs) And so about midway through the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, God sends two prophets. And and they prophesy and preach all over the world. And they do all of these amazing miracles. And they are killed. And it's a public execution. And their bodies are left hanging for three days dead. So the whole world knows that they're dead. I mean, you can just imagine like people recording it on their phones, right? And then after three days, God raises them up to life. And in front of everyone, they ascend to heaven. And at that point, many people believe and they glorify God. But there's still some people who will not believe. And and the next thing that happens in chapter 13 is this beast appears. I have no idea what the beast is. Revelation is apocalyptic, metaphoric language, okay? It's hard to understand. So I don't know if this beast is a person or an empire or what. But it's a beast. And and Revelation 13 verse 3 says he has, he seems, it says he seems to have a wound on his head that that should have been fatal, but it healed. And people are in awe of this. And they're like, oh, he should have died, but he did. No one can destroy him. 
And so they worship him and basically recruit him to be their leader and have a war against God. And you can tell the hardness of the, these people in their hearts, right? Because there were God's prophets who actually did die. And God publicly rose them from the dead. And that was not enough to convince them. But along comes this other somebody who's like, oh, look, this should have killed me and it didn't. <laughs> and they believe that. And they follow that. Those people get a mark of the beast. They worship the beast and they get a mark of the beast. And in Revelation 14, so that's Revelation 13. Revelation 14, it says this. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receive its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image. And for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This is the only verse in all of scripture that definitively say that there are some people that burn forever and ever. And they're people who get the mark of the beast because they've worshipped the beast. And there's a lot of paranoia about the mark of the beast with Christians. Like, what will it actually be? During the pandemic, I heard a lot of theories that the mark of the beast was a COVID vaccine or your vaccine passport. God doesn't send people to hell for getting a vaccine. <laughs> like, we just have to think about these things. The people who get the mark of the beast get the mark of the beast because they worship the beast. And so, therefore, their fate is the same as the beast. That, that's the imagery that Revelation paints. The beast gets thrown in here forever. Those who worship him and have his mark get thrown in here forever. Their fate is the same. Okay? Does that mean that everyone whose name is not written in the book of life has the mark of the beast? Revelation does not say that. Definitively one way or the other. It only says those who have the mark of the beast worship the beast. That's what it says. There's um, one more popular theory about hell going around right now that I wanted to address with you. There's some Bible teachers that say when Jesus talks about hell, Gehenna, he's talking about a place on earth, and he's describing hell on earth. And that means that there is no hell to come. It is true that hell, one the most consistent thing, sometimes it's weeping and gnashing of teeth, sometimes it's fire, 
But it's always separation from God. Every single story is separation from God. So right here, when we rebelled and broke the earth away from God, that did become hell on earth. That was separation from God and from all his goodness. So the New Testament, there are times that Jesus makes these statements that kind of refer to the hell on earth. Like the Pharisees, he calls them children of hell. Like they're already living there. The good news that Jesus also says, when Jesus came, he invaded earth and he brought the kingdom of heaven with him. Right? John the Baptist said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming, it's near. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Like he, he brought it with him. And so the picture... I'm so not good about this. Here we go. There we go. All right, the picture that we have that Jesus paints of our time now is an earth where both heaven and hell are present. But one day he will return and separate them. What does this look like? What does heaven and earth together, heaven and hell on earth look like? You know, I I think it looks like um, teenagers. I'm not done yet. (laughs) Ringing the wrong doorbell. Opening the wrong car door. Turning around in the wrong driveway. And getting shot. I think that's hell on earth. I think heaven on earth looks like strangers who call 911 and ambulances who come and medical care and hopefully justice done. All around us we see both heaven and hell on earth. Jesus came once and he started the work. But he has not finished it. He is coming back again to finish it. That is the good news. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't mean hell disappears, though. The Bible is clear about that. It's just separated. One of the last things in the book of Revelation, from the last chapter of Revelation, is this. And I think it kind of summarizes the teaching of Revelation. It's one of the summary statements. Revelation 22, verse 11. says, Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. God respects our choice. I said it last week that God gives us what we want. That wasn't the best way to say it. The better way to say it is that God respects our choice. And those who want to live rightly and live with Him will. And those who don't 
God says, let them continue to do wrong. And he lets them. In the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be any more shootings. Because there will be no reason to fear. There will be no reason to even have guns. There will be no more suffering and no more death and no more tears. We're going to live in peace. But if there's one thing that this teaches us, is that humans can't live in peace with each other. Like, this was our choice. This is still the choice we make all the time. That we want to do our own thing. What is it when you have a world where everybody does their own thing? It's chaos. It's anarchy. You can't have that here. You can't have selfishness here. We have to know that our own desires are wrong and they deceive us. And we have to recognize the goodness of God and want that. And all who want that will go here. And those who don't won't. Because they'll ruin it, won't they? And God says, let them. He respects their choice. I don't know if the fire in hell is literal or if it's symbolic. To some extent, I think the burning of hell is the burning of hatred. It's the burning of anger and fear. It's the burning where no one can trust each other. It's the burning of people like hoarding whatever material trash they have and not sharing. Did you get that one parable where, like, why did the rich man go to hell? It wasn't because he's rich. It's because he didn't share anything with Lazarus, right? The other parable, where Jesus says, look, you didn't clothe people. You didn't share anything. You didn't care for the poor. They end up here. This is a place where everybody's just in it for themselves. I think maybe they form alliances, but only to use each other. They violently lash out at others because they're afraid of one another. That's hell. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And guys, I don't know how long people go there for. But I know... God is merciful, and I know he is just. Second Peter 3, 9. This I know. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I don't think repentance is a one-time thing for us. I think that there's a first time. I think there's a time where we first decide to receive the good news. (laughs) That Jesus came 
So we have some heaven and hell on earth, but we have an opportunity to just be in a place where it's just heaven and earth. There's a first time that we accept that good news, and there's a first time that we say accept that Jesus is the Son of the living God who died for us and rose again, and we invite the Spirit of the living God in us. We surrender to it, to Him, to bear that good fruit, the peace, the joy, the patience. There's a first time we make that decision, but let's not deceive ourselves. We get stuck in the weeds a lot. The deceitfulness of wealth and many other things. And there are times that we have to again and again choose to repent and submit ourselves to His Spirit again. It doesn't mean that every time you sin, you're not going to go to heaven. Because remember, we don't earn our way into heaven, right? We don't. So sin can't keep you out of heaven either. Your faith in Jesus Christ is how you get to heaven. But there are times where we stop producing fruit. Where we quench the Holy Spirit's ability to produce fruit in us because we're stuck in the weeds. And we need to repent again. So I'm going to end this message with prayer. And I'm going to pray a couple prayers. Three, actually. One is for anyone who, it's your first time. You hear Jesus knocking on your heart's door. And now today is the day of salvation. You want to trust him. And open up your life to him. I'll pray that prayer and you can pray it along with me. I'm also going to pray for all of those who have gotten stuck in the weeds, okay? And we need to recommit. And then lastly, I'll pray for all of us to be workers in God's harvest. Because God does not want anyone to perish. He just, it's not just that He doesn't want people to go here. He doesn't even want people to go here. And this is not a fun place to go. This is, this is punishment. This is justice. And we have an opportunity to share the good news with people. If we care for them more than we care. <laughs> okay, I just got to tell you a story. I know this is a long message. I am so sorry. This is like the longest I've ever preached. When I was in college, I was talking to a mentor about telling people about Jesus. And I said, it's just so hard because I'm so shy. And she goes, yeah, I used to think that until I realized how selfish I was. And I'm not, I'm not selfish, I'm shy. And she goes, yeah. I realized I was more concerned about what people thought of me than I was of where they would end up. And that changed me. So I'm going to pray for that today too, okay? Let's pray.
wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Thank you, God, for who you are and that you are faithful even though we are not. any of us who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, Lord, we confess that we have done wrong. And we know that there is consequence for that penalty. And that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid that penalty in our stead. We confess that, Lord. And we receive you as our Lord and our Savior. Holy Spirit, into us. We open our lives to you so that you may rule in us and bear good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. God, I thank you for your spirit. And we open ourselves to your spirit now. And we thank you for the promise of eternal life. God, for all of us who have received your gift of eternal life already, we have a tendency to get stuck in the weeds. Lord, today we recommit. We ask that you do the weeding in our lives and rip up everything that distracts us. I have a gift.